The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Understanding Tick-2's Role in Psoriasis Pathogenesis and Taking a Practical Approach to Realizing Its Potential in the Clinic. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash XMX860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. So thank you so much for joining Dr. Lebwal and myself uh, for a talk on understanding TIC2's role in psoriasis pathogenesis and also really taking a look at practical approach about thinking about therapeutic potentials. So today we have a few different objectives. Number one is to understand the mechanistic rationale for inhibiting TIC2 in psoriasis. And then also we're going to take a look at classification of disease severity, but thinking about that in the context of how our new oral therapies may help to treat patients of different disease severities. And then finally, think about TIC2 inhibitors in clinic through a few cases that we have for you. Great. And with that, I'm super excited to share the podium with Dr. Lebwal, who is Dean for Clinical Therapeutics and Professor and Chair Emeritus at ICANN School of Medicine um, in New York. So please take it away. Thanks. Thanks, April. And I'm going to go through this really quickly. Um, but I want to take you through a little history of, you know, why do we have this drug, which I use a lot of, uh, Ducravacitinib. And so this is the list of therapies that before Ducravacitinib uh, uh, existed for psoriasis. And so why did we have to add another drug to this list? And here's what happened. This drug, apremolast, comes out, and it's modestly effective, certainly less effective than most of our biologics. And in no time, in two years, the sales soar. This drug that is extremely safe, but, you know, not that effective. It's, it's effective, but not that effective. And then the other thing that you know, it's pointed out to you, that people who have, on these huge gene surveys that are done, they looked at different diseases that came up or went down, and people with mutations in TIC2 that render TIC2 ineffective don't get psoriasis. They have an 80% reduction in psoriasis. So what do you think the next logical step to do is? And of course, they did make a molecule that is very specific for TIC2. You know, very quickly, what is TIC2? It is part of the Janus kinase uh, family. Um, and there's JAK123 and TIC2. And what they do is they affect something called signal transduction. To make that complicated word very simple, phosphate is the message that triggers cells to develop what they're supposed to develop. So for example, TH17 cells make IL-17. What triggers them to do that? It's IL-23. So, um, uh, so, and he, there's a picture of that. There's IL-23 coming it hits that receptor, cytokine receptor up there that's bound to the membrane, and then TIC2 mediates that message going through, uh, through uh, a molecule called STAT, which ends up activating the nucleus to make IL-17. And we know that IL-17 causes psoriasis, so very simply stated, if you can block TIC2, you can block this step, the patients don't make IL-17, their psoriasis goes away. And that's what happened. Um, now, TIC2 is very unique, and you probably all don't know this. When this molecule was designed, it won all kinds of awards because we have a lot of JAK inhibitors, and the JAK inhibitors all have an ATP binding site, and they all bind to that. And that's why when molecules come out and they say, well, you know, this is JAK1 specific, it's a little JAK1 specific. You know, it may affect JAK1 more than JAK2 and 3, 
but they, all of the JAK inhibitors hit that site. So they all cause a little inhibition of, uh, you know, TIC3 and TIC2, uh, I'm sorry, uh, JAK2 and JAK3, um, and also of TIC2, which has that site as well. So they bind, they actually inhibit all of the uh, Janus kinases. Now, um, TIC2 has a regulatory domain for which ducrabacitinib is specific, and, uh, and it's the only one uh, of the JAK inhibitors that hits that site. And that's why it can block TIC2 without affecting the other JAKs. Why is that important? So TIC2 is responsible for IL-12 and IL-23 and type 1 and TH1 interferons, interferon alpha and beta. And um, it's kind of like ustekinumab in a big way, which we know has a, a very good safety and efficacy profile for psoriasis. On the other hand, JAKs 1, 2, and 3 hit IL-2, which has many effects, and blocking that can be quite immunosuppressive. Uh, erythropotent, thrombopotent, so it affects the bone marrow dramatically. Well, when you just block TIC2, it takes very little of ducravacitinib to inhibit interferon alpha, interferon beta, IL-12, and 23. It takes a ton of it to affect the other JAKs, IL-2 and the, and the erythropotent, thrombopotent. So it is really specific for TIC2. Uh, it was a big campaign to get them to not put the boxed warnings that exist on the other jacks onto cravacitinib because it is very different than the other jacks. It is very specific for just the TIC2 cytokines, which are these cytokines. Okay, let me take you through the phase two and then the phase three data. So um, this was the phase two trial where they really knew they had a home run on their hands, and this was a dose-ranging study. So you see that there are many doses that were used. The three top doses ended up coming in one on top of the other. So three milligrams twice a day versus six milligrams twice a day versus 12 milligrams a day are almost at the same level in terms of PASI-75. They're those top three, top three uh, lines over here. When you look at uh, 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 PASI response rates, again, three milligrams twice a day, so six milligrams once a day is the drug we have, is pretty similar to 12 milligrams a day or six milligrams twice a day. So, you know, not that different. Um, if you look at PASI-90, again, they're one on top of the other. The results are virtually identical. Uh, and if you look at clear or almost clear, again, one on top of the other. In fact, three milligrams twice a day is exactly on top of 12 milligrams once a day. Six milligrams twice a day was a tiny bit lower. Uh, and this is, again, at week 12. So you're seeing, actually, the 3 milligrams twice a day had a little bit better number than the 12 milligrams daily and a good deal better than 6 milligrams twice daily. So it was pretty logical from the dose-ranging study that 6 milligrams once a day, or either 3 milligrams twice a day, but a once-a-day dosing has advantages. So 6 milligrams once a day was going to emerge. Um, and you can see from the 6 milligrams twice a day and the 12 milligrams once a day that there was no advantage to twice-daily dosing. Uh, so the once-a-day dosing appeared to be reasonable. Now, there is some separation at PASI 100, where you see that 3 milligrams once-a-day is a little bit less than the 12 milligrams once-a-day. So, you know, having said that, um, that holds out a little promise for other indications in the future where we might want to use a higher dose. Okay, and there's the PASI uh, 100 data where you see that, again, 3 milligrams twice a day is a little bit less effective than uh, the two higher doses. Okay, what about um, 
baseline demographics, this was a tough group of patients. A lot of them had been on biologics that either didn't work or uh, certainly they just weren't staying on. And the other thing is they had substantial PASI scores around 18 or 19, 17 to 19 actually, with the PASI scores in each of the groups. So tough group of patients. Uh, in terms of safety data, it was quite safe. No deaths, uh, serious adverse events. There was uh, one that was undoubtedly a two actually, but undoubtedly a coincidence. It was, uh, I'm sorry, it was one and it was 2% of patients. Um, the com most common adverse events are what you would expect, cults, uh, nasopharyngitis and upper respiratory tract infections. Now you might look at those numbers on top and say, well, that's pretty high. Um, but when you look at the 12 milligrams once a day, it's not dose related. So probably um, not, not a signal that the ducravacitinib contributed to those. Interestingly, acne at the highest dose emerged as a side effect. And how many of you have used ducravacitinib? Right, not many of you, kind of surprising. I've actually seen acne. It's a small percentage of patients, and mo most of the patients I'm treating are older. So it's kind of unusual that you would see it, but I have actually seen acne uh, as an uncommon side effect, but one that occurs. Um, here's the data from the phase three trial. Uh, and this is pretty eye-opening. So the top line is uh, ducravacitinib six milligrams once a day. And you see that at the primary endpoint, week 16, it um, dramatically beats apremolast, 58.7 uh, to 35.1%. Similar numbers in the other trial, a little bit closer though. Um, and of course, it beats placebo, which is the yellow line. Um, I'll also point out that notice that the trajectory of the line is still going up. And in fact... Uh, if you look at six months, uh, it's only starting to level off in the, so in the poetic SO2 trial, still going up in the poetic SO1 trial. And I actually tell patients, this drug peaks at six months. So they've got to be a little more patient. I will say, if you look at week four, the lines are beginning to separate. So there is some response at week four, and we have seen that. Actually, I'll show you one of the first patients I treated after the, the approval of the drug it's a uh, four-week photo. Um, so you do see benefit as early as four weeks, but it's really 12, 16 weeks, where, and even 24 weeks where you see the peak benefits. So you have to be a little patient with it. Um, if you look at um, the response at six, week 16, uh, this is, uh, oh, this is clear or almost clear. Again, similar curve, uh, where you're seeing it's peaking at week 16, but goes up a little bit through week 24. And of course, it beats apremolast and placebo. Uh, and uh, uh, here again, you're looking at those responses. Let me just go similar numbers. Now, what about lasting through week 52? That study has been done. And you see that the line is just flat. So first of all, the placebo group were treated at week 16 and uh, crossed over to active drug. And you see that they catch up very quickly to the um, group that had been on the drug from week zero. But notice that from week 16 to week 52, the numbers are almost identical. Um, so the drug not only works, but continues to work. You do not get tachyphylaxis. You don't get the effect wearing off. Um, this is a uh, uh, withdrawal and retreatment study. So what they do here is they take patients who responded, they put them on placebo, they wait for the um, psoriasis to come back, and then they retreat them, and they look at what proportion of patients recaptured the response, and it was 87.5%. So it's excellent uh, uh, recapture rate. Okay, when you continue on for two years, 
the line is flat. Uh, the patients continue to respond for two years. That was PASI 75 numbers. Uh, this is one year for clear or almost clear skin. Okay, this is a study just very quickly in Asian patients. The uh, mean body weight tends to be lower, uh, and so the results are actually a little bit better uh, than you saw with the results I just showed. But everything else that I said is the same. You know, uh, it continues to peak beyond week 16 in some of the parameters measured, um, and the efficacy is, you know, perfectly maintained through the 52 weeks of study. Um, Okay, and, and when you look at the safety, again, the safety remains the same. You'll hear more about that from April, so I'm going to turn it over to you, April. Great. Thanks, Mark. Excellent. So I am going to cover in my section two things. One is safety and also some of the psoriatic arthritis data from the phase two studies. All right. So... When we're thinking about oral medications, um, we oftentimes think about safety first. And I feel like for a very long time, we had to make a trade-off, right, between medications that work well in the oral realm, but then have significant safety issues, such as some of our traditional oral medications versus um, uh, something that's very safe, but potentially have modest efficacy. So, um, so let's take a look at safety profile of ducravacitinib. So here is looking at pool safety of ducravacitinib comparing with apremolase and placebo. So let me orient you a little bit. Um, here is the placebo group. We have the ducravacitinib group and the apremolase group here. And the beauty of these trials, as Mark have said, is that you have an active comparator of apremolase. Um, so what you saw was that pretty comparable rates of nasopharyngitis across during this placebo-controlled period. And uh, here we have uh, upper respiratory tract infections, also uh, quite similarly comparable. Um, what you see in terms of tolerability issues, so things like headache, diarrhea, and nausea, what you see is that the ducravacitinib group is at least the same or lower than that of placebo. So it's very well tolerated. And because we have the active comparator arm of a premolast, here as we can see here, for example, headache rates are numerically twice as that of ducravacitinib, and then diarrhea and nausea rates are significant, are, are, are higher than that of, uh, uh, of both placebo as well as ducravacitinib. So not surprisingly, probably from these um, AEs that I've uh, showed here, uh, when we look at discontinuation rates, so these are patients who were enrolled in clinical trial, and then we want to see what percentage of them would discontinue uh, by week 16, what we saw is that when you're looking at these three groups, ducravacitinib had the lowest discontinuation rate. And I think that probably speaks to the good tolerability of ducravacitinib in our patients. And then here, I also wanted to show you uh, AEs where ducravacitinib is numerically greater than the placebo at rates 1% or higher. So as you can see here, there were low rates of upper respiratory tract infections, as we talked about, uh, blood CPK that was transient, but typically have uh, the patients have continued the medication without, um, uh, without uh, and, and seeing the normalization later on. There are low rates of herpes simplex here that are pretty uh, similar in what we typically see in the systemic trials. There were low rates of mouth ulcers, folliculitis, and acne, as Dr. Lebwell have talked about earlier. 
but uh, I think the magnitude of these is important to look at pretty low. So we're looking at between 1.4% of acne. Um, and so when we think about acne rates, for example, for JAK inhibitors that we have for atopic dermatitis, for example, some of them we're looking at rates of greater than 10%. So, um, so I think it's important to not only know what they may be, but also uh, see the magnitude of, of those rates. Okay, and also there were AEs of interest that were studied, and overall what was shown is that there were no significantly increased rates of non-melanoma skin cancer in the ducrafacitinib treated group as compared to the placebo or premolas, nor malignancies, nor serious infections. Zoster was, uh, uh, was numerically greater in the ducrafacitinib group um, compared to the placebo and the uh, premolas group. Uh, your thromboembolic events were also similar to placebo as well as a premolas group, and also there were no increased rates of MACE events. Okay, what about laboratory parameters? Um, so in the clinical trials, uh, the patients uh, underwent a number of different laboratory assessments and also at quite uh, regular periods. So we have a very good understanding from our pivotal studies with regards to what happens to their labs over time. So here is week 0 to 16. And again, why the first four months is very helpful is because we have a placebo group. Um, we also have an active comparator, a premolas group. And so what was shown here is that in terms of total cholesterol or creatine phosphokinase or uh, neutrophils or platelets, overall what you saw as a population level, they are very similar to one another. In fact, I, I, I oftentimes like to say if you remove these labels, you probably won't even know which group belongs to which when you look at these um, laboratory parameters. What was also looked at is hematologic parameters, right? These are important. Why? Because we want to avoid hitting JAK2 because the JAK2, JAK2 combination is what's very important for a lot of our uh, cell lines. So here we're looking at lymphocytes, neutrophils, platelets, and hemoglobin. And what was seen was that um, the, these, uh, the laboratory parameters were within normal limits, and not only during the first 16 weeks, which I showed you earlier, but also extending to 52 weeks in patients that were treated with ducravacitinib. Some of the additional safety data um, I want to talk about is that um, we, we discuss a low, very low rates, very well tolerated, very low rates of nausea and diarrhea, similar or even lower than that of placebo. And uh, the low rates of zoster, it's about 0.9 per 100 patient years. And there are also low rates of follicular uh, acne or folliculitis, 1.7 or, or lower. And, um, and then the, in the clinical trials, discontinuations due to the laboratory abnormalities in the ducravacitinib group was actually very similar compared to placebo or premolast. In those with a liver disease, it's not a contraindication. However, if they do have liver disease, and if you're thinking about using ducravacitinib, you do then want to follow their liver function tests over time. A few other important clinical uh, points to make is that, um, as you know, it's six milligrams once daily oral medication, so that's quite convenient for our patients. Um, so it's for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. Uh, and, uh, and, and I point this out because you don't have to fail uh, in, in the package, and so you don't have to fail other therapies in order to 
get to ducravacitinib. So it's a moderate to severe adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. And also importantly, um, no tests are required prior to initiation other than TB. So you do need to check TB on everyone. If they have known or suspected liver disease, you probably want to check LFTs as well as viral serologies in them. And then there are no known drug to drug or drug-drug interactions to date. And then finally, for patients, they can take with or without food. Either way, they have good bioavailability of the medication uh, in their body. Okay, so um, I talked about 16-week safety data. I talked about one-year safety data. Now I'm going to take you through the two-year safety data. Before we look at the two-year safety data, it is important to note when the trial was performed. So in much of the two-year long-term extension study, so the gray part is the COVID-19 pandemic. Okay, so, uh, so as you can see, majority of the year two is actually spent during the pandemic time. So here, this side of the, um, of the slide shows the different rates during one year, which we looked at. And then here are the two years. And overall, what we see is a very similar safety profile at two years compared to one year, with one exception is that you have COVID uh, cases that are recorded, infections that are recorded during year two. And as I talked about this before, to contextualize it, that during the two, uh, year two is when most of the long-term um, extension uh, had happened. And in fact, when we were looking at this data and there was a poster that was presented at the EADV that looked at whether ducravacitinib treated patients with whether their rates of infection were different from the general population. And then the answer to that is not no. And then whether ducravacitinib treated patients, whether they're, when they are infected with COVID, whether their outcome was different, and they compared that with the general population, they were also no different. So that poster, I think, was very helpful. And I know, Mark, I've, I've seen you talk about that poster before as well. So I think that's quite informative, especially as we live with COVID uh, from this point forward is something to keep in mind. Excellent. So the next part I'm going to go over is uh, whether ducravacitinib work in psoriatic arthritis. So let's take a look at the data. So I want to have you first focus on the left-hand side of this particular slide. And so here is the phase two data uh, looking at ACR20 response, so at least 20% improvement in patients' signs and symptoms of PSA uh, at week 16. And there were two doses that were used. So let me go over this. So the orange is the placebo rate, um, looking at proportion of patients who have achieved at least 20% improvement in their joint signs and symptoms. Then they have the six milligram group, as you can see here, um, in the middle. So that's about 53% of the patients achieve that. And then on the right-hand side, you have the 12 milligram QD group. So about 62, uh, 63%. So overall, what we see was that uh, both six milligrams as well as 12 milligrams were statistically different from the, uh, the placebo group. So as you can see here, I think when we're interpreting uh, PSA data, we typically see for the systemic medications anywhere between 50 to 60 um, 
uh, percent for ACR20 as a, as a good response. So the phase three trials are currently ongoing. I also want to point out, in addition to plaque psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis, it's also being studied in inflammatory bowel disease as well as lupus. So I think this pathway is definitely uh, being explored. And also, importantly, just speaks to the mechanism action when we're looking at oral medications in development for um, for you know, our psoriasis, most of it is focused on TIC2 inhibition, right? We don't see anything in late phase development that targets JAK1, 2, or 3 um, at all, actually, in psoriasis. So we're looking at people focusing their energy on TIC2. And also, in addition to that, when they focus their energy on TIC2, they're not blocking the active domain, right? We're getting smarter as a field, and that they're rather they're looking at allosteric inhibition, inhibiting the regulatory domain. Excellent. So I think overall, as, as we know, we, we do have many choices uh, in terms of psoriasis treatment. So it does have to be a shared decision-making process. And uh, I don't know how you feel about the shared decision-making process. Um, uh, I, I, I remember when I was in medical school, it's, it's kind of like whatever the f doctor said, you know, the, the, the patient executed. But I think our field has evolved in a in a different way where we, we uh, actually, by taking into patients' values into consideration, we actually can really actually help increase their, their adherence to, the, to, this, um, to our therapy. So I like this model where as clinicians, our role is to convey some of the facts about the treatment, and we do want to make a recommendation, and then we want to solicit from our patients their values and preferences that we may not be aware of, and then working with them through that process. And I think ultimately that actually uh, really improve the patient outcome, because if it's just one direction and unidirectional, maybe the patient is just not going to use the therapy. And, and so, so I think having the shared decision-making is important. So here, we're going to probably bring out a little bit later on through the case studies some of the discussion points. So for now, we'll just kind of think about um, could they be, uh, could ducravacitinib be used in those patients with potentially failure to topicals? How about involvement of special sites? Um, those with a preference for oral therapy and also whether they're oral therapy naive or experienced, could it be a possible candidate? How about biologic naive or experienced? All right. So this brings me to our case presentations. So there are two cases, um, and I'm going to kind of start us off on one case, and I'll dialogue with Dr. Lovewell about this. And so this patient, um, you have to kind of exercise your imagination. It's a patient, then we imagine this patient having kind of different parallel universes that they live in. Okay, so imagine in one universe, this is um, a 35-year-old woman who's diagnosed with chronic plaque psoriasis for more than 15 years, a long time, 10% BSA, and also some nail psoriasis, right? Distal onycholysis of the fingernails. So, um, you know, she has tried a variety of topicals, so very similar to the case that we just uh, talked about, not satisfied, phototherapy, inconvenient. She's a little bit hesitant about injections. She doesn't quite want injections. So here are some of the kind of options. And uh, Mark, if you don't mind, um, sure. what kind of goes through your head at this point? So uh, yeah, I'm just going to focus on the nails for start. So first of all, the patient has limited disease. But when you have a treatment that's quite benign, 
Um, you know, as you heard the safety talk, there's no signal of anything bad. Uh, and the patient doesn't like injections, kind of directing you to an oral therapy. And of course, of the oral therapies that we have, this is certainly safer than methotrexate um, and actually more effective if you, obviously it wasn't a head-to-head -head trial, but this, the data here is better than what we see in the trials that are published for methotrexate and certainly better as you saw in the head-to-head -head with uh, apremolase. So, so immediately it should come to mind. But what um, really I think of when, when palm or sole or nails are involved, biologics have difficulty getting to the tiny blood vessels that reach the tips of the fingers and toes. And, uh, and so small molecules are actually often more effective. And so I would actually immediately, even if the patient did want, in, did, was okay with injections, and I, I love the biologics, they're very targeted, very safe, but I would start thinking about a small molecule here, and uh, uh, Ducrevacitinib fits that description. I think those are great points, Mark, especially about the size of the molecule and its penetration in, yeah. in our peripheral tissues. Yes. And I think also when we're thinking about overall treatment and the classification of psoriasis is we're trying to kind of a little bit stay away from mild, moderate, and severe classification, but rather think about patients who are candidates for topical therapy versus those who are for systemic therapy. And for those, it's either, so the, the key thing is they meet either of any of those criteria, so BSA 10% or more, disease involving special areas, just we, like we talked about, nails, for example, and also palmar, palmar plantar area, scalp area, genital area, facial area, and then failure of topicals, regardless of location. Um, we can think about uh, our systemic medication, oral or biologics, um, in those situations. Okay, so our... Uh, now, our 35-year-old woman, same presentation, now lives in the universe where she now is currently actually on a premolast, um, but is considered a switch because she is experiencing some of the GI effects. And uh, any thoughts on that, Mark? I'm sure. making you work here. Yeah, so this is easy because, you know, uh, there, aren't, there are no standout GI effects of ducravacitinib, and it's more effective. So this is kind of, this is a no-brainer. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Um, now, what if a patient has dactylitis in, on her second digit, for example, in the right hand? Maybe I'll, I can discuss that one. So as you can see in, in the phase two uh, studies that uh, Ducravacitinib was evaluated for the psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis signs and symptoms. So certainly something to monitor to make sure that the patient is not only responding from a skin perspective, but also from a joint perspective as well. Okay, and then imagine the same woman suddenly is now 67-year-old. So um, same woman, same presentation now in the third parallel universe, somehow she rapidly aged um, to 67-year-old, and um, pretty much the same history. So this is having us think about, gosh, you know, when we have uh, patients, you know, that are a little bit older and that are coming in and is, you know, is ducravacitinib potentially a good option for our patients? <laughs> what do you think about in, in this age group? Uh, so I will say... Um... There's no safety signal in ducravacitinib. It's a very you know, safe drug. I mean, many of you would treat 
a patient like this with a TNF blocker in the old days when we didn't have anything, or a premolast, which has a lot of GI side effects. And uh, now we have, we're, we're looking at a drug with fewer side effects than those, so I wouldn't hesitate to use it. Great. Um, and I shall say that it, ha it was studied in the different age groups and, um, and the efficacy of the medication and the safety yeah. of the medication I, I will say, was you know, not you, different among the different You mentioned uh, herpes zoster, which the rate yes. was uh, 0.9 cases per 100 patient years. But you know that those 0.9 cases are going to be in, in, adult, in older adults where the frequency of zoster is much higher. So, you know, I, I have a very low threshold for writing a script for, uh, for Shingrix for my patients, and specifically Shingrix, because there's no issue with live vaccines if you need to get them, um, So, uh, uh, which Zastavax is, of course. Uh, and and I, I would probably, at baseline, think about having the patient vaccinated with, uh, with Shingrix. That's a great point. Oh, yes. Start the tip two, even though there's a series of two, There'll be three months delay before you get the second. You know, I would, I would start it. Um, there's not great evidence with uh, Ducravacitinib about vaccinations that I'm aware of. I don't know if you are. Um, certainly for the other JAK inhibitors, there have been some recommendations that you stop them for, for example, a week uh, after, after vaccination. In fact, that's come up. The American College of Rheumatology with uh, the COVID vaccine has recommended holding the uh, JAK inhibitors. But we don't have any data on um, ducravacitinib, but certainly ustekinumab has no impact on vaccinations. So uh, here we're not just blocking what ustekinumab does, we're also blocking interferon alpha and interferon beta. But um, having said that, uh, it's not a big deal to hold the drug for a week. Yeah, exactly. That we, we don't have uh, you know data in, in this area yet. So if you want to be safe, you can hold it for a few days, five to seven days, and then um, after each, uh, each Shingrix vaccination. Okay, so I have a, a couple of teaching points with this case. Um, so this is a 47-year-old man with psoriasis on his elbows, knees, and hands for five years, and it's severe, particularly on his hands. Uh, and uh, this is a real case, and I'll show you before and after photos. Failed TNF blockers, failed ustekinumab, failed an IL-17 blocker, and he is currently on rizankizumab with clearing of elbows, but no improvement on the hands. And that is a standard story. And if you look at any of the studies for palm and cell psoriasis, the drugs that work really quickly for psoriasis, they do work for palm and cell psoriasis, but you're looking at instead of a, you know, 80% improvement by week 16, you're looking at maybe a 25% and then six months later, a 50%. And, and it kind of hovers around there. They don't do nearly as well on the palms and soles as they do on the body. And there's several studies showing that. The gesture study, which was uh, secukinumab for palm and sole psoriasis, but there's several of them. We did a uh, rizankizumab trial, and the drug works. There's no question that it works, but it doesn't work as often as it works on the rest of the body. So here's our patient on rizankizumab. And um, I'm going to show you the photos. This is a patient we treated. We added uh, ducravacitinib to rizankizumab, and I'll address the issues of combination therapy as well. But there's the patient. And, you know, the drug's only recently on the market, so I don't have a long follow-up, but I'll show you he came back uh, four weeks after starting. And uh, there's the before, 24 days, actually, after starting. 
And there he is after just 24 days. So you see actually a, a fairly rapid improvement. And what it is, it's that it's a small molecule and it can get to the hands pretty quickly. So I know that the patient is still doing well, but I haven't seen him since that 24-day picture. Uh, and uh, hopefully I'll, the next time you see me, I'll be able to give you a clear pair of hands at, uh, at um, somewhere between three and six months. So um, again, that's 24 days after starting to crevicitinib. Okay, so this is what it says on the other jacks. Do not use in combination with biologic DMARDs. And the reason it says that is that when these were tested for other indications, for example, rheumatoid arthritis, they allowed the patients to be on methotrexate, which is much more dangerous than any of the biologics we use. But they never allowed them to be on biologics. And for that reason, it was excluded in the package insert. So it's not because of safety. It's not because of efficacy. It is, is because it, they weren't tested during the pivotal trials. Now, here's what it says on ducravacitinib. Ducravacitinib is not recommended for use in combination with other potent immunosuppressants. So I have uh, treated, at this point, several uh, uh, scores of patients, well, certainly close to 50 patients with ducravacitinib since it was approved. Uh, and many of those, probably more than half, were combination therapy. Initially, we had three denials, and I simply wrote back, uh, this biologic is not a potent immunosuppressant. We won all three cases right away. There was no pushback from the insurance companies. So... Um, so we do have a large number of patients on the combination, and as expected, I wouldn't expect any uh, uh, side effects. I would not expect, you know, the I use I don't use a lot of TNF blockers. I use primarily IL-17 and IL-23 blockers, which are very benign. Um, and the combination with ducravacitinib means I'm taking two benign drugs, so uh, we're not seeing any side effects. Uh, I mentioned I saw one case of acne, uh, but um, not much else. So with that, let's open for Q&A. Could you address usage in patients with history of malignancy? Any concerns at all in patients with history of malignancy? Uh, and also, you, you addressed the, the, uh, the zoster thing. What about any concern about reactivation of hepatitis infection, hepatitis B? Do you test for that baseline? Do you recommend that? Or not necessary? Yeah. You know, so uh, we both probably will answer this a little differently, but let's, I'm curious what you would do. I, can I know already what I do. Yes. So for malignancy, currently, we don't have a lot of data from the clinical trials on malignancy. So I don't use it in patients with a history of internal malignancy or active malignancy. Um, I don't have qualms using it in patients with a history of non-melanoma skin cancers um, in terms of malignancy. And uh, it, with regards to uh, viral hepatitis, uh, it is uh, the package insert just say that you do not use um, ducravacitinib in patients with hepatitis B and C. So if you suspect that may be the case, I would advocate that you check those serologies. Yeah, so my answer is virtually the same. I, you know, so first of all, I compared this to eustachinumab, but we actually do have malignancy data, and there is no increase in malignancies with eustachinumab in the SOLAR study. However, this also blocks interferon alpha and beta, which is not blocked by eustachinumab. So I am also not comfortable yet using this. And we have very good drugs, you know, IL-17 blockers and IL-23 blockers. More and more data is coming out, which appear to show them to be very safe. Uh, certainly with the IL-17s, I think at this point we have large numbers of patients. A uh, recent publication that I, I published was thousands of patient years of uh, secukinumab-treated patients, uh, and the rate of malignancy was 1% lower than the general public. Um, so that's you know, one group. Um, 
you know, so we have better drugs at this point without having the data here. I'm uncomfortable using it in malignancy. Although skin cancers like April, you know, they're easily treated, they're minor, they're common, uh, and I don't hesitate in the patient with a few skin cancers. As far as hepatitis B or C, so if somebody has hepatitis C, they should be cured. You know, you, you know, we have good treatments for that. That should be taken care of. If somebody has hepatitis B, if they're surface antigen positive, um, the risk of the, they're already reactivated, and I send them to a hepatologist who um, I can tell you what he'd say, although this hasn't happened yet. Um, uh, he would probably say, you know, stay on the antivirals, you can continue on the drug. I have had it happen that a patient with core antibody uh, positive uh, came to me, uh, and the hepatologist put the patient on entecavir, which is an antiviral. Uh, and the data, certainly with biologic therapies, is when patients are treated with entecavir, there's almost never uh, reactivation of the core antibody patient positives. Uh, uh, so the core antibody um, uh, patients converting to uh, chronic active hepatitis. So, um, so we do, you know, I, again, I send them all to a um, hepatologist, and he does follow their titers. We've not had one patient convert on any of the biologics when they're on entecavir. Yeah, and, and, and I think for the clinical trials, um, as with almost all clinical systemic clinical trials for psoriasis, we, the patients with positive hepatitis serologies are excluded. So, so that's why we don't have enough data in that particular area for, for Ducravacinib. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I typically encourage my patients to um, stay on Ducravacitinib. And uh, um, the reason is because, you know, when you look at the withdrawal data, they, they do, um, they do uh, experience a return of disease, um, I think around three months uh, for them to lose their POSI-75 response on average. Um, so I, in general, try to convince them to, to stay, um, especially if they are, especially if they're not clear, then that's clearly they need to kind of stay on the medication. Where I consider possibly um, tapering is um, I also have patients on combination biologics with uh, ducravacitinib. So I um, essentially treat them to clear with a combination and then actually thinking about having ducravacitinib, then going uh, have the patient take them, for example, on the weekdays um, and, then, and then going there to kind of dial down to, to a level where they will maintain their clearance, but perhaps not daily ducravacitinib. But this is obviously completely off-label, and, you know, we're kind of trying it out, so. Yeah. I, you know, remember that the recapture rate's about 87%, so you're going to lose about one out of seven or eight patients if you stop the drug uh, in terms of recapturing it, but, you know, I, I would have the same answer. What about females of childbearing potential? Are you doing any sort of screening for them? Are we doing a TB evaluation? I mean, and then and the second follow-up question would be, if you have a patient who does want to get pregnant and I start her on this, how much time should we say take off before, okay, go ahead and start trying to conceive? Yeah, so currently we don't have enough, in sufficient data, unfortunately, in females of um, childbearing age. Um, usually, you know, I tell them that if they do think about family planning to let me know. Um, and uh, I think for now, um, if, if they're actively conceiving, then I may consider a different option because we have good biologic options, um, such as sertralizumab, which would, you know, take them safely kind of through the pregnancy. So I probably would, you know, wait until what um, 
the, the sort of the post market, you know, as we collect more safety data, have the pregnancy registry for it to, to be able to evaluate safety in, in, in pregnancy and breastfeeding. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we don't know that the drug is teratogenic at all. There's zero evidence of that. So if a patient was on it, hadn't planned a pregnancy, became pregnant, uh, I wouldn't be that alarmed, but I would probably discontinue the drug for the same reasons that uh, April said. Uh, the question was, is there a role for checking CPK? Um, you want to? Yeah, so I do not check CPK at baseline or follow them. In the clinical trials, uh, there were a few patients with elevated CPK, which uh, nearly all of them resolved without, uh, with a uh, uh, res resumption of the medication. There were two cases of rhabdomyolysis that was noted in the clinical trials, one associated with a patient who uh, was a female who started a very rigorous exercise regimen, and another one uh, with, a, uh, with a, a patient with uh, multiple comorbidities um, who had a uh, uh, who had a uh, essentially compartment syndrome in one of the um, the arms. Um, however, th that's pretty rare, and uh, um, and I think with so so I know in the session earlier, general session, there was was a discussion about CPK there as well. But in general, um, I, I I I do not check CPK at base at, at baseline or uh, onward unless patient is symptomatic. But that that's just my approach. Yeah, the cases that had elevated CPKs, if they're looked at carefully, very often it followed you know running in a marathon or over exercise. And I don't think there's any reason to have to do it. Uh, and I did like what Linda Steingold said today about CPKs. Uh, you know, uh, actually, we've had a patient on uh, uh, one of the hedgehog inhibitors. And those, of course, cause muscle cramps. And they are indeed associated with CPKs. And my patients went over 1,000. And, you know, I was alarmed. And I called the nephrologist who laughed at me. And, you know, Linda said today that her nephrologist said, oh, you don't even need to be concerned till 5,000. Well, mine said, you don't need to be concerned till 10,000. So we should probably have a bidding war there. But, <laughs> but, but the point is you need many thousands to affect the kidneys. What do you do um, for any baseline labs and or follow monitoring? So, well, the, you know, the package insert actually says very little. It says monitor lipids according to, I can't remember the wording, but basically what you would do in the general public. Um, I can tell you what I do, and I think we gave you a handout today that listed what you need to do. And it's actually pretty easy to, for all the JAK inhibitors. You can take, except for ducravacitinib, which requires much less. They all require baseline TB testing. We do check hepatitis. We check the same bloods we check in biologics. We check um, uh, hepatitis profile. We check routine bloods, you know, chem screen, CBC, because somebody ought to have that once every few years. We do check lipids. Um, and for the other drugs, somewhere between four and 12 weeks, and if you go through the list of them, it, uh, you know, it was when they checked it in the trial is what you're told to do in the package insert. But the truth is, they made that, they pulled that number out of the air. So somewhere between four and 12 weeks, you know, we would check a CBC and lipids. Uh, and we, you know, we might check a chem screen as well for the liver function test, but that's it. And you do that once a year, except for tofacitinib, where you have to do it more often, uh, according to the package insert. For ducravacitinib, you almost have to do nothing. If you do, you know, um, lipids according to routine, uh, you know, that's the routine for lipids is uh, really for people with cardiovascular risk factors. You, if they don't have that, you check it every five years. You know, so we have been checking lipids. 
it's a reason to bring the patient back and, and do it. But the, if you looked at the package insert, they don't call for much, right? And do I have yes, it right? Yeah. yeah. So um, I oftentimes for lipids make sure that they have a primary care physician and, uh, and they probably know that lipid checking kind of frequency because there, there's no additional above the general population recommendation yeah. that's uh, placed on ducravacitinib. So I gener- I may, I'd say, do you have a PCP who kind of check you? You know, you go to the PCP regularly. So that's, um, that's I uh, double check. But essentially, I check for TB at baseline. And then, um, and then per package insert, if they do not have suspected or known liver disease, you don't have to check anything else. However, on the safety side, if you want to check viral, hep- viral serology, such as hepatitis B and C, I think that's a good precaution to do as we're getting more comfortable with the medication. Um, and, uh, uh, but certainly if they have known or suspected liver diseases, it's not a contraindication to use uh, ducravacitinib, but just to follow their LFTs um, uh, uh, over time. And then for follow-up labs, there's no uh, requirement in the package insert for, for ducravacitinib. Well, thank you, everybody. Thank you all for being here. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash XMX860. This activity is supported through an educational grant from Bristol-Myers Squibb.